I'll just tell you a little, I'll just tell you a little deal. You know, God is so good. Even the wedding feast of Canaan, you're missing out, turn the water into wine. You're missing what this thing's all about. He, he, he wanted to keep his mother from being socially embarrassed. That's what that was all about. And uh, so she bought me a, a wedding band, and it was just a, a wide wedding band. And, and uh, I've, I've wore it. I've wore it. I wear it to work. I've worked work every day for the last 42 and a half years. And uh, while we've been mud and texturing a lot the last three, four, five days, I've taken it off because my, that mud and stuff will slip off and I'll lose it. And I almost lost it one time, but I found it. Steve had it in his back pocket. And I found it. But, um, but two, three, four, five days ago, I've been taking it off while I've been spraying sheetrock. And anyway, I lost it. I lost it. So I asked, you know, I, I didn't want to say anything to Gayla first. And, and then I come right down to it. I had to own up. I said, I lost my ring. And then, you know what she says. Well, where'd you have it last? Well, if I knew that, I wouldn't ask you that, you know? So I went to all the places that I knew that, that, that I might have laid it. I've only got about four places. The kitchen sink's not one of them. Near the vacuum's not the other one. So don't, and um, I couldn't find it. And so um, I told her yesterday, I said, uh, I was sitting down at the table and I was writing notes out for Jordan. And um, I mean, I mean, the Spirit of God just said, it's in your change canister. Now, if you're new, you're going, oh my God, he's one of those guys. I guess I am. I believe the Lord is alive. I believe the Spirit will talk to you. I don't serve a dead Jesus. He's alive. He's risen. He'll speak to you. We have confirmation of this, whether it be at Emmaus or the upper room. He'll talk to you if you'll just shut up and listen. And I mean, I thought, what? And he said, he didn't say, I didn't have a thought like go looking. I have a change canister by my dresser. It's about this big, full of, just full of change. Till the grandkids come over. One time, Anna come over. She goes, look what I got. And I said, where'd you get that? She goes, out of your change canister. I said, you put that up, you little thief. And, and I mean, something just told me, it's in that change canister. So I was the only one in the house. You know, I didn't want to argue with God. I said, oh, it's not. So I get up and I go over and look. It had some pants or something on it. It had been covered up. And I looked and I thought, well, that's dumb. I opened, you know, I took the pants off, looked in there and nothing. And I went, I started out back out of the bedroom. Before I hit the door, something hit me and said, it's in the canister, you bonehead, basically what he said. And I turned around, turned the light on, and there it was. Now, how did he get there? I, I probably threw change in there. I don't know. I don't care how it got there. I'm just glad I got it out. It's little things. You're, you're, you're overthinking your Christian walk. You're, you're just overthinking everything. He is here. He, is, he helps us. He is a helper. He's a facilitator. He will talk to you. He, he, will, do, he, he will walk with you. And so publicly, the Bible says, if I'm ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of me. And publicly, I just want to tell God publicly, thank you for helping me find my ring because my wife was right in the middle of watching those lifetime channels of how to murder your husband and get away with it. She watched that. I used to get paranoid. Why are you always watching these shows? You know, <laughs> he was wounded. 
This is week five. And Isaiah 53 tells it, for he was wounded. How was he wounded? So five weeks ago, on this was the fifth, when we began the process that science said there's five major wounds that can happen to a body. The first one we talked about, contusion, bruising, hidden, hidden hurts. You walk in there with long sleeves and long clothes on, and we never know that someone has beat you with rods and piss. We have no idea the, the, the brutal beating you've been taking through the week because the bruising, no blood is leaking out like a radiator that sprung a leak, but the blood vessels have been broken under the skin. He was bruised. The second one was laceration. He was scourged. Pieces of him come out. Somebody took chunks out of him. He survived it. Scourging, you weren't supposed to live past it, but he survived it. We talked about he, he, will, he will suffer all these for you and I. Pieces, somebody's taking pieces out of your life. Somebody has said something with your tongue like a cat of nine tails or a cord of 12 that have removed pieces of you. Now the blood is leaking. The third one was penetration, the crown of thorns. Not only was the flower poisonous, but the thorns were poisonous. And as he recorded in Genesis chapter number three, thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow. Thorns are painful, thistles are poisonous. It gives you an idea that what went in, the penetration in the mind, never came out. We have no record that the thorns was ever removed while he was alive. There's some things in your mind will never be removed from your thought process. Never. And you'll search witches and the TV evangelists to pray over me that I won't remember this. It's not going to happen. The thorns stayed in him. He suffered these mental anguishes to remind you and I that we don't have to have thorns removed for us to, to carry out the destiny of what God has assigned us to. Last week, we talked about perforation, the nails, three nails, perforation. The nails nailed him to the cross. And this is what I said last week. It's one thing we talked about for you to carry your cross. It's another thing for you to be crucified to it. We have all these little Christianettes running around saying, I'm carrying a cross, but are you crucified to the thing? Are you nailed to it? These nails made sure he stayed put. There's some things in my Christian walk that on my own and by myself, I may talk myself out of it. These three nails, we'll talk about it in a few weeks, is predestination, propitiation, and sanctification. It is the three nails dealing with the sovereignty of God that will not let me leave. I can't leave. I couldn't go if I wanted to. At this point, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, he couldn't come down if he wanted to. God made sure. And we found that last week, there's things we go through life that we cannot get free from or release from because he attaches us to certain burdens that we bear. And some burdens, some things were never meant to be removed from our life. It was meant to be endured. If you're here this morning and you're, you're looking for a feel-good church, go down the street, I guess. I don't know. I'm just telling you, we're real Christians with real problems, with real pain, but I will tell you, God is greater than our problems. He's got more grace than I've got problems. That's what I'm trying to tell you. He's not in the business. And I told you last week, I don't care if you're happy or not. This is not a happy church. 
Now, that may offend some of you. It's okay. But I will tell you, I understand what the word hat means. I'm more blessed than I am happy. I can be joyful in the Lord, and I'll explain to you what joyful needs one day. But I will tell you, sometimes in our Christian walk, things happen to us that will remove our happiness, but our commitment to God has got to go past being happy in the flesh. Because I'll tell you, somebody, some of you, and most of you this week have not experienced too much happiness in your life, but something kept your spiritual feet one step in front of the other, and that's because he has attached you to himself. I can't go anywhere else. If I try to, I'm miserable. So last week we talked about perforation. Not only the marks went through, but they attached him to the cause of what God has sent him to earth. There's some things that God will just will not let you lose from. Number five is where we end the wound series. This word is called incise. And incise is where we get a word for incision. And this wound, unlike laceration, laceration is not a cut. Laceration is a tear. Laceration has everything to do with something ripping, pulling apart. You never go to a doctor and he says, well, we're going to work on your gizzard today and I'm going to go in there and just rip that thing right out. Hopefully we don't do that. What he says to you that we're going to make a, a, a small incision. They told me that one time, we're going to make a small incision. It wound up to be about eight inches. I thought, oh my goodness. Incised incision. An incision, by definition, means to cut or surgically cut with a sharp instrument. This has everything to do with the spear. So I understand it's Palm Sunday. You know I know everything about everything about that stuff. I just choose not to talk about it today. I just choose to stay with the wounding. All five that he was wounded because we will experience all five. All five. So let's back up just for a few moments. For the last three and a half years, that in the life of Christ, we have seen some incredible events that have occurred. Phenomenal. Matter of fact, Jesus even asked just about two weeks before his crucifixion, he says with his disciples, says, who do people say that I am? And some says, some say that, that you're like Jeremiah, you're, you're a weeping prophet. Some say that you're like Elijah, you're powerful and, and people are a little afraid of you and and." and we just can't put our finger on you. You're, you're, you're like Elijah, the, the weeping prophet, and, and Elias, and, and all these other. You're, you're, you're like all of together. And what he wanted to say, he said, because I am all that the prophets have spoken about. And he gave them that answer to those on the road to Emmaus. Remember, from the beginning of Moses all the way up, all the prophets, he expounded. The Greek word means he took a long time. It was seven miles to the walk, and he took seven miles to expound to them the scriptures to reveal of himself. Some tremendous things have happened in the last three and a half years, but now then, on this day, the winds have shifted. The season is about to change. 
and for his earthly life on this earth, the sun is about to set. His focus now is on Jerusalem. Mark 11 records it correctly. In the triumphal entry, Mark 11 records that Jesus will walk into Jerusalem, but he will not walk out on his own. It's too late. Now, I personally have never seen this, but Niagara Falls is, a, is one of the wonders of the world, and, and I would like to go see that. I'd like to take Danny DeVore up, up there and push him off the cliff, see if he can live. But, but they say a few miles north of Niagara Falls that the stream's current's about five miles up. From the, from the cliff's edge, it's about four miles an hour. It's just a gentle little flowing but just a little ways from the edge of the cliff, there's a sign that says this. It's a point of no return. Sure enough. And at this point of no return, that they have calculated that from this point on forward, that now the current of the water can be over 40 miles an hour. And if you, in a boat, or if you fall in, but a boat cannot even resist the current of a 40-mile-an-hour water current. Now, whether it's true or not, you can go home and Google it, but some say that a 40 to 50-mile-an-hour water current is as much as a 727 wind on a jet airplane. Can't fight it. So if you get to this point of no return, this great big sun, and you fall in, the rest is history. Jesus has now crossed that point. Jesus is now at that place where the currents are now pulling him with great force and great gravity to Jerusalem. And matter of fact, that is so powerful that now then, once he has crossed that point, when he moved into the final entry there in Jerusalem, that the same people that were saying, Hosanna, Hosea the highest that was prophesied in Zechariah is the same people in a few days will say, crucify him. Same people. So now Jesus has entered in on that eighth day. And now then this is referred to in St. John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Have you heard me say the in-house epistles? No more miracles. No more teaching to the crowds. He's now at home. The Exodus lamb is at home. Exodus 12 gives you the, the kind of the nomenclature of this, that they were commanded on the first Passover to go find an a innocent male lamb one year and under. There's reasons for that. This is a G-rated sermon. They had to find a male lamb under one year of age, spotless, without blemish. And on the 10th day, they would move into the house. They would take the lamb. At a, I used to raise sheep. I did. And I look at you and say, you are so beautiful this morning. <laughs> so on the 10th day, on the first Passover, they were commanded to go to the field and they had to pick out the perfect sheep, the perfect male specimen, certain qualifications to this. 
And on the 10th day, they brought him into the house and let the kids lay on him. You talk about the original Tempur-Pedic pillow. That was a quadruped. And there he laid until the 14th day. And those kids got to lay with this animal, got to sleep with this animal. The animal got to lay on the bed, got to lay by the fireplace. His wool is perfect. He's so innocent. The house full of kids running around. And now then, it's not just some animal in the backyard. The thing moved in the house. Don't ever take your children to the dog pound and say, we are not bringing home an animal. Four cats and nine dogs later, you bring them home. The idea is that Jesus now has moved back into the house. On the 10th day, they brought this lamb into the house. And on the 14th day, there wasn't a dry eye in the building. They had to kill it. My job is try to get Jesus out of a religious theater that he means nothing to you. The pageantry, the parade and the pomps and circumstance. My job is to make by the Holy Spirit the actual and the factual footsteps of Christ laying the pavers for you in this triumphal entry that he is more than just someone hanging on the cross. He is someone that is personal relationship with you. And in the first Passover, he walked into Jerusalem on that day in Mark 11 and stayed with them in the house. And on the 14th day, isn't that amazing, on the Sunday, which was the 10th, and they crucified him on the 14th. Coincidence? I think not. So now then, he's at home. The Lamb of God is now in the house. And he can't leave. So now then, John 14, 15, 16, these are all wonderful in-house epistles that he's speaking directly to his disciples. Directly. Nobody else. As a matter of fact, one of the words that whether you get offended or not, when he says, I want you to love one another as I've loved you, he's not speaking to sinner people. Don't play that. Don't play that with me. I'll take him back and I'll get you. He's not talking about, oh, we should love the world like, like, we, like he's loved us. That's not even biblical. He's looking at these disciples and he said, you have got to learn to love one another because you're sold out to me. You're committed to me. You've been walking with me. And when Jesus is looking at these 11, he's saying, listen, you're going to have to learn to love one another like I loved you because the kingdom of heaven is in you. So I'm not even speaking to the world. Jesus said, I'm not even praying for the world. John 17, I'm praying for you. He's got them locked in a room. This is mind boggling to some of you. He's in the house. He'll, he'll never speak to the crowds again. And so now then, the, the current has pulled him so hard into Jerusalem. The current is pulling him to his death as he wishes death. And Jesus, like anyone else, is being overwhelmed with a current of chaos and confusion. 
there seems to be a struggle. Now, I'm not retracting anything what I'm telling you. He was, he was sent by God. He was commissioned by God. He was ordained by God. He was predestinated by God. The will of the cross was in the Father's footsteps for him. But I will tell you, it doesn't mean that there was not a struggle because there was a struggle. Remember what he said in the garden? He said, if, if, if there's any other option, I'll take it. But it's not my will, but it's your will. There was struggling involved. Now, so what I mean by that, Luke will best describe the struggling if there is a struggle. Because the reason why I say there's a struggle because I know what you're going to say. Well, Jesus was the son of God. Well, so were you. But, but, but Jesus had the fullness of the spirit. Well, you, you had the spirit in you too. And I'm saying, I'm not telling you that Jesus would have quit because he probably wouldn't have. He's just telling you there's a struggle involved here. Luke best describes it. It's found in Luke chapter 9, 29 through 31. Eight days before his crucifixion. Eight. And when he prayed, this is when he takes the three stooges to the Mount Transfiguration. I call them the three stooges because they get up there and they're a bunch of goofballs. They always say the wrong things. He takes them to the Mount Transfiguration. The word, there's no such thing as Mount Transfiguration. It's the mountain and, and that's where he was transfigured. And so he takes Peter, James, and John and the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and they spoke about his death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Leave that up for a moment. Just a few days, just about a week, he's going to be crucified. And evidently, there's a, evidently now then, the current is pulling him so closer to the walls of Jerusalem, knowing him full well he was born to die, knowing him full well that he would be crucified. And somewhere, we have to take some type of a comfort in knowing that he too struggled. Because Hebrews says that, do we not have a high priest who has felt all of our infirmities, our weaknesses? Jesus has felt all of our weaknesses and all of our infirmities. He, he, he taken on the garment of humanity and become flesh and walked among us. But somewhere, just a few days before his crucifixion, that that his mind must have been racing and something must have been struggling. And so when he takes Peter, James, and John to the mountain, that here Moses and Elijah meets him. And forget about what Peter said. Who cares what Peter said? I want you to know what these men are saying. They were sent by God. Moses represents the law, the word of God. Elijah represents the power of God, the spirit of God. God commissioned the word of God and the spirit of God to come together to encourage him and sustain him. They talked about his death. No high fives, no belly bumping, no, you the man. These two were there to assure him that everything he was about to face will be painful and it will be brutal but it is needful for the salvation of mankind. 
I personally have not had that experience, but do we have any mothers here that gave natural birth to a child? Just raise your hand. I'm not going to pick on you. Dilated to a 15, if you would, please. Somewhere in the back of your mind, are you thinking, is there another way this child with horns can come out? You've heard me say this, but men in the waiting room, oh, we're having a baby. Listen, brother, you're not doing nothing. You're not having anything. Don't even say that in her presence. She'll grab you by the short hair and say, listen, buddy, we're not having anything. When you learn to pass a roll of bob wire somewhere, you'll feel what it's like to have a baby. Jesus is saying, I know that this is the only way that it can happen, but I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be brutal and the end result will be wonderful, but the process of it, these two, Elijah and Moses, represents the Spirit of God and the Word of God came together to confirm his footsteps for his death. That's telling me that there was a struggle going on with him. Every one of us has struggles Every one of us has heartaches. Am I speaking to a right church or are y'all all visiting here? Every one of us has rebellious children. My father had one. It's not that funny, Melissa. You laugh twice. We know what it's like to have grandchildren that have wandered away. We know what it's like to have hurts and disappointments, but... Isn't it amazing that every time you can come to the body of Christ, hopefully somebody will present the word and allow the Holy Spirit to reinstate your commitment to God? I've got too much to gain to lose. And I understand I've saw your report card and I read your latest book. It's tragedy, it's hate, it's rage against you and words spoken against you. And I understand that. But here's the deal. The word of God is here to sustain you and the spirit of God is here to, is to encourage you and assist you that you will fulfill the assignment that God has prepared for you to fulfill. He will not let me go. So the spear, John 19, 32 through 37. So then came the soldiers to break the legs of the first and the other that was crucified with him because they had to get him off the cross. He went there on the sixth hour and had to get off by the ninth. And the only way they could do that is they had to get them off for Passover because Passover said that this, if Passover began at six o'clock and if the body was laying on the ground, it laid there for three days. You couldn't go any further. So they had a, now don't, 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 don't throw anything at me, but they were so religious. They had a, they had festivities to attend here. They could care less about killing my savior. They had a, they had a, they had a, all you can eat buffet going on here. They had lambs and his, they had all that stuff. And they said, we, we've got to get rid of these guys so we can get the buffet line started. That's no joke. They had a festival going on. They could care less about murdering my Savior. 
So they had to get him down in the cross and he had to be buried before six o'clock. Had to. That's when Passover started. And so the way that you would do that is that that, that they would break their legs and that way that breaking their legs that that they couldn't support themselves with their legs and feet and so they were forced to be suffocated, their lungs would collapse. So they broke the first two. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced or inside his side and forthwith came out blood and water. And he that saw it bear a record, which is John, and his record, which is John's record, is true. And he knows that he said it's true, that, he, that, he, that you might believe. John said, I'm watching this. I didn't hear it firsthand. I watched it. This is not secondhand gossip. I'm, I'm watching this thing. For these things were done, watch this, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And another one, scripture says, that they will look on whom they have pierced. So John is watching this. And he said, I'm bearing witness to what is happening here. Two things that the scripture has been fulfilled by not breaking his legs and by sticking a spear in his side. So you need to know. This is first one is found in Psalms 34, verse 20. There's three to do. We'll do this one. He keepeth all of his bones and not a one of them is broken. Bones always represents strength. No man broke him down. He was just broken open. No man broke a bone in his body. No man took his life. Jesus said, no, the son of man, no one will take his life, but he will lay down his life freely. All of Christ's strength was still with him. All of Christ's authority in the bones was still with him. Remember what Paul talked about? He said, be careful, these people, because he said, he said, because their words are like gangrene. Gangrene. They'll cause what they use the word where we get a word for, for catastrophic, catastrophic, cat is down, strophe is steer. These words of hymenus and fletus, they are like gangrene. Gangrene only affects the bones. The Apostle Paul said, by listening to false doctrines and false teaching, they are eating away of your support system, your strength of your Christian walk. There's no blood running anywhere. Gangrene is devouring your bones. No bone was broken in Jesus' body. Number two, the incised or the pierced in his side is found in, one of them is found in Psalms 22 and 16. For dogs, the Gentiles have compassed me, dealing with the cross. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and feet. So the next thing it says, that they looked at him and the soldiers saw, already saw that he was dead. So the question is, then why are they stabbing? Because Psalms 22 had to be fulfilled.
Because if Psalms 22, verse 16 was not fulfilled, then the Bible is a lie. If one scripture does not come to pass, then we can't believe any of it. If one prophecy in the Old Testament has not been brought forth as it's supposed to, then let's don't trust any of it. Let's go by Reader's Digest or National Choir. But he said the reason why the bones was not broken was fulfilled in Saul. But now then, that before it's all said and done, some Roman soldier, for no other reason and not knowing anything, walks up on the right side in between the fourth and fifth rib, rams that spear through him, and out comes him blood and water. Now, I'm not a doctor. But I play... I played music with a, a doctor one time. Hypovolemia is a word called low blood volume. Hypovolemic shock, I think, is the word. Is that close, Danny? He's in shock. How did he get in shock? Through the scourging. That scourging, if he haven't, wasn't here, that scourging was giving... A lot of, most men died during scourgings because those 12 cords of, of pieces of, of metal and bone and glass and was meant to tear. A, that was not the cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was on the back to motivate someone, but they would not cripple the only servant they had to pull a plow. That would be dumb. But for someone that they knew they were already going to be crucified, they didn't care. And they took a scourge with 12 cords and attached to each one piece of bone, metal, and such, whatever, with, with tear skin, and they would hit it, and, and there, was no, there was no scope involved. There was, it, it was just wherever they would land, and a lot of the juggler veins would be removed. They would die on the spot. That was very common. So when you were scourged, there, there was no hidden motive outside of the fact that, that more than likely we will kill you. So now then, he was scourged. And one of the signs of hypervolemia is this, that not only there's tremendous blood loss, but fatigue, collapsing, fainting. And I read that there is an unquenchable thirst in the body because now then, the blood has lost, the body's lost so much blood that the heart is now racing and fluids and water is now pumping near the heart and the lungs. He's going in shock. Remember he collapsed? Remember that? He collapsed. He collapsed on the way because he's lost so much blood. And, and, but because he lost blood doesn't mean that the heart quit functioning. Now that the, the heart has to pump faster because the body is screaming and the nerves are screaming. We need more blood and the heart is pumping and it's pumping and it's pumping, but he's lost blood everywhere. There's not enough blood to support his body. He's in shock. That's why he said on the cross, I thirst. I'm weak, I'm fatigued, I'm collapsing. I'm in shock here upon this cross. And, and medical science says that the heart will race for a period of time and then it'll go into a cardiac arrest.
someone told me it was like, I think it's called pericardial effusion. It's, there's not enough blood in the body so now the water absorbs around the heart and the lungs and you die. The spear was there to reveal he was dead. Because when the spear hit him, what came out? Blood and water. It's telling you that the heart has quit. And now that there's the mixture of the blood and water. So I think that these two things where I'm about to tell you is so, one of the primary doctrines of the Bible. The incised wound that he suffered brought about two things in a natural body, not only to reveal that he was already dead, but number two, two things for you and I as followers of Christ. Number one, the blood. First Peter chapter one, verse 18 and 19 says this, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with the corruptible things as silver and gold, but your conversation, your lifestyle received tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or with spot. The blood will always represent redemption. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there's no forgiveness of sin. Two things come out of my Savior's side. Number one, the blood. The blood, it speaks of atonement. And I'll say something to you that's a little weird, but the people of Israel in the Old Testament, once a year, they had the, they had the Day of Atonement. Those people understood atonement, but they never, ever experienced redemption. Atonement and redemption are not even related. Atonement means to cover for a short period of time until next year. Redemption says, I bought you with my blood. You're mine. And his blood will never diminish or seek another source of what we need in our spiritual walk. And so the first thing that came out of his side was atonement, redemption. The blood redeems. The second one is water. Water speaks of purification. The Jews did sanctification, washing. The scripture, one of a, of a thousand, and we're quitting, you got time, but Ephesians 5 and 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just like Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for the church, ecclesios, ecclesios, us. Not the building, not the parking lot, us. That Jesus might sanctify, purify, or cleanse the church. How? By the washing of the water, by the word. So this is what it means in good old fashioned, plain evangelistic talk. Not only am I saved, but I feel like I'm saved. Not only does the blood redeem me, but the water cleanses me on a daily basis. And he allows me to feel like I'm one of his. 
I wouldn't give you three cents for something I couldn't feel. I wouldn't give you two cents for a denomination or religion that I couldn't feel him working in my life. I wouldn't give you a wooden nickel for any concept of religion that I couldn't feel him driving down the road when, when I'm at my worst or my, or my best that the Spirit of God didn't come in and just overwhelm me with, with his spirit of, of encouragement and, and, and a sense of, of, of sonship. The blood and the water, not only is your sins forgiven, but he allows you to feel purification of the Word of God washing you on a regular basis. For that, I'm very thankful. So this morning, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. Out of the dust, God created Adam, Adam. And he gave him an assignment and he gave him a mission and he gave him a task and and Adam began to name all the creatures, rhinos, hippos, giraffes, orangutans. He named them all. They just prayed him by and he's sitting in a lawn chair and he goes, I'm going to call you that and I'm going to call you a hippo and I'm going to call you all the names. And by the end of the day, he said, man, this, this working for God is wearing me out. He had a name for all of them. But the Lord said, it's not good for a man to be alone. And he said, well, I'm not alone. Pretty obvious that. I got a zoo here. And he said, boy, I'm sure tired. Felt like you on Sunday morning. And he goes to sleep. And he wakes up and he said, ouch. What's happened on my right side? And then he looks up and there, here's a a beautiful specimen of something, a creature he's never seen before. The Hebrew word of his name is called Ish. Ish by definition means in the likeness of God. Adam is the dirt name. Ish means the likeness of God in the Adam. And he's looking at her and he said, Isha, You don't look like anything like the hippos and the rhinos just run by. He said, when I see you, I see me. When I look at you, I see me. You're not like any of the creatures I name. Even though you have parts I don't and I got parts you don't. But when I look at you, I see me. How do I know your favorite color is blue? How do I know that? Your favorite flower is a yellow rose. How do I know everything about you? And yet I've never heard you say one word because she said, I've always been in you. Genesis 1, 29. God made male and female and he put both of them in him and he extracted her out of his right side and she became the bride. How do I know what pleases Christ? 
keeping laws, keeping rules, keeping certain days, certain foods, certain festivities? How do I know that what he wants? Because we've always been in him from the foundations of the earth. And at Calvary, watch this. My Savior went to sleep. And the church come out of his right side. The blood and the water. We are redeemed. And we are purified by his spirit. Don't ever confuse religion for knowing that's the heartbeat of God because it's not. How will you know what Christ loves? You already know because we've been in Him from the foundations of the earth and at Calvary through the Spirit, the incision, out came the church, the blood and the water. And wherever we go, here's the deal. We're telling everyone we know that Jesus is the only way, He's the only truth, and He's the only life. So this morning, here we go, we're done. I know what it's like to be bruised. I know what it's like for people to say things that you have no idea they hurt me. I know what it's like to have people take chunks of me out. I know what it's like to have a crown of thorns in my head that I cannot get those words out of my mind. They're poisonous. I understand that and they hurt too. I also know what it's like to be attached to something and nailed to something that I can't get away from. God will not let me away from it. But I also know what it's like to be a recipient of the atonement blood of Christ and the renewal of His Holy Spirit in my life on a daily basis. There is a fountain that's filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And the sinners plunge beneath that blood that will lose all their guilty stain. Stand with me if you would, please. Father, of all the wounds that your son and my savior Jesus endured for us, thank you so much for the spirit. Thank you so much for the blood and the water that came out of his right side as the first Adam and now the last Adam out of the right sides that the bride of Christ was birthed. Thank you for the blood that atones us. Thank you for the blood of Christ that covers us. Thank you for the blood of Christ that redeems us. And Father, thank you for the washing of the water by the Holy Spirit of your word that every day when we wake up that we seem to be purified from the inside and out. That you'll purify our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and you will just wash us with the word of God that we may be a, a better husband and a better wife and, and a better servant towards you. Thank you for your wounds. Everyone in this place, we've all experienced one or all of them. But you, you laid the foundation for us. Thank you for that. So if you're here this morning 
And if you never have ever made a personal commitment to Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, the acceptance of the atonement work on the cross, today's your day. If by the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God is calling you and you've passed the point of no return this morning, that the winds of the Holy Spirit is drawing you. There's a gravitational force of the Spirit of God that's drawing you to Him. You're no longer playing church. You're no longer a religious fanatic. The Spirit of God is calling you into a, a commitment. And today you need to answer and respond to that. Father, would you please get us past the point of no return in our walk with you? That our focus will not only be set on Jerusalem, but Judea and wherever we may go, that we will fulfill the assignment and the destiny that you've set before us. It may not be easy. It may be painful. But Father, I can attest to the fact in the last 40 years that you have sent Elijah's and Moses's to my life to reassure me that my life was not in vain. You've sent great men and women of God my way to remind me that the sacrifices that have been made through the years have never been in vain. And I say to you this morning as one of the prophets of God that I understand you've been through some things and I understand that you may have to experience some things, but I will tell you as Moses and Elijah, I will tell you this morning that I'm here to reassure your steps that God has great plans for your life, that glory will be revealed in your life. It may not come about the way that you thought it would be, but I will tell you, he will be glorified in your life. That's what this whole thing is about. So Father, this week, prepare us for resurrection next week. But this week, we celebrate your wounds. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. Turn to about two people and just hug them and say, you know, I love you. I just want you to know that. I'm not kidding you. I love you. Take them by the hand. I know you've been through some things. I know you've been through some things. I saw you bend over and I saw the small part of your back, woundings and bruisings. I could hear it in your voice. I could see it in your eyes. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. Pieces, if you are gone, your mind's a mess. 
But I'm here to tell you this morning that God's going to be glorified in your life. Despite what you've been through and despite where you're going, God's going to be glorified in you. Communion servers, make your way this way, please, sir. On that first Passover, you know the story. Jesus says with his disciples, the crowds are all gone. The fanfare is all gone. There's a crowd gathered in the garden, 600 soldiers that are waiting to take him. He knows it's about over. He knows that the climax of his calling is just about done and up to now that he can endure it. But the next few moments when he leaves this upper room, it's going to get brutal. And he turns to these men in a private setting with a, with a broken heart. And he said, for 1,500 years, you have been celebrating on this day, the first Passover. Two sacraments that was involved. First, it was the unleavened bread. It was a sign of expediting quickly out. No time for rising of the yeast. It means there was no sin involved. John records it in John 6. He said, as, as your heavenly father has rained manna and bread from the heavens, but your fathers did eat, but they did hunger. But Jesus said, but if any man eat of me, he will never hunger again. I am the bread of life. And they took the bread. And then he took the cup and it represented for 1,500 years, it was the lamb's blood that we talked about. And they were to take that blood and they would place it on the door of the post of the door and in the shape of a cross that when the Abaddon or death angel would come that night, that he would pass over that household. And Jesus looked at these men and he said, I am now the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And my father will soon take my own blood and place it in the shape of a cross. That if any man would believe in me, that he will have forgiveness of sins. And he said, every time that you celebrate the bread and the cup, you're doing this to remember me. Father, right now at this moment, we're gonna remember you your son, Jesus. As we celebrate these two sacraments, it's more than just bread and juice. It's the body of Christ and it's the redemptive work of Christ for our life. And we celebrate it this morning in Christ's name.